everyone. Welcome to the Mirror Stage Podcast. I am Kiki Dominguez. My pronouns are they, them. I'm here with my co-host. I am Ann Tobin. My pronouns are also they, them. And in this podcast, we explore our local theater company, Mirror Stage, as well as other community members and things they are doing. Ann, did you want to add anything to that? I, I mean, you took it right out of my mouth, I gotta say. <laughs> um yeah but you know we we look at what does it take to make a theater or what does it take to be part of that community what does it mean to be active in whatever community you find yourself in yeah so this episode is going to be one of a two-parter where you'll be meeting suzanne cohen who we like to call our head boss in charge who is the managing artistic director of mere stage this interview is a compilation of a few separate interviews we had because as we would do our interviews, we would learn more and more and then we would come back and think, oh, we had more questions or, or we were curious on other things because her story and the mirror stage story is is t- very fascinating. It has a lot of different twists and turns. There's a lot of different journeys to get us to where we are today with mirror stage. 100%. I'm really excited because in part two, we're then going to talk about like, which is next month, we're gonna talk about like the theory of Mirror Stage and all of that. So first we're gonna talk about her origin story slash the Mirror Stage origin story and kind of how we get to where we are now. And with that, please enjoy our interview, our first parter of our interview with Suzanne Cohen. Thank you for joining us today. Suzanne Cohen, our founder, our leader. How are you doing today? I am doing well. How are you? Doing pretty well. Yeah, so this episode's all about learning about Mirror State. So let's start off with what is your origin story? My origin story, well, I was born in Washington, D.C. And when I was, what, about a year and a half old, we moved to New York City because my father was going back to graduate school. So I mostly learned how to talk in New York City. And so then we moved back to Maryland when I was about four. And I used to get teased a bit for like saying forward or apparently I said egg in a weird way that I got teased about sometimes. But yeah, so I spent most of my formative years in suburban Maryland from age four. And then I started doing theater. The first show that I was in was in fourth grade. We did a production of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and I played Mrs. Bucket and sang Cheer Up Charlie, and then I was an Oompa Loompa, and my father designed the sets. We all built them together as a class, and that, like, I was, uh, uh, that was it. I mean, I had been taking dance classes and doing some other creative things before that and continued doing that, but yeah, I've been, I've been doing theater since I was in fourth grade pretty much. And so when I first started college, I was actually a biomedical engineering major and I was going to minor in theater. And I very quickly realized that I was staying up late to rehearse 
I was not so very interested in getting up at eight to discuss calculus or physics. So I started at University of Maryland in College Park. And after two years, I left University of Maryland. It was my choice, but I probably wouldn't have been given much of a choice after another semester or two. And so I went to community college for a couple of years. And that's when I first started producing. I had taken a directing class at University of Maryland. And so I started directing scenes. And so then I produced like a night of one act at Montgomery College. And then I got accepted into the summer program at American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. So that brought me to the West Coast. And I spent 10 weeks in San Francisco. And then one of my classmates there had told me about a program that she was going to be attending in Salinas in Central California. That was like a semi-professional theater company. And so I rented a car, drove her down, auditioned, got accepted into the program. And so then I spent a year in Salinas as part of this semi-professional theater company. And then I moved to Los Angeles to finish my undergraduate degree. Because actually, this is much more longer and involved than I thought it would be. But when I auditioned for ACT in San Francisco, I had also auditioned for USC for the BFA conservatory program. And I had also auditioned for Juilliard and for NYU. And uh, everybody said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> and ACT said, well, you know, yes, come to the summer program, but not for the full program. And so while I was at ACT for the summer, Anna DeVere Smith had been one of the auditors for USC. And she was teaching a seminar at ACT because she was just starting to do her work. She was doing research about playing different genders. And so she, she came to do a seminar and she saw me. She was like, oh, hey, so we're going to see you at USC in the fall. And I was like, no, you all rejected me. And she was like, no, we loved you. What are you talking about? And I was like, well, I got a letter saying no. And so she made some phone calls and figured out that the School of Drama wanted me but the university said no because my grade point average from University of Maryland was so bad because I trashed it when I was a medical engineering major. So thanks to Anna DeVere Smith intervention, then I was able to get into USC the fall after spending the year in Salinas. Unfortunately, by that point, I was old enough that the school didn't want me to start as a freshman in the BFA program. So I was an alternate for the sophomore BFAs, which meant... I could only get into the BFA program if somebody died or dropped out. So I was in the BA program at University of Southern California and was thinking about switching to UCLA. And then I heard that one of the professors took a group of students and alumni to Edinburgh to participate in the Fringe Festival every summer. And I decided I wanted to be part of that. And so I sought out that professor, whose name was John Blankenship. And so I went to Edinburgh the summer of 89 and the summer of 90. The way the program that Blankenship ran worked, we would go over to Edinburgh for seven weeks in the summer. And so the first four weeks, we would be, basically, we rented an empty hall and built a theater. So we built the platforms, we used scaffolding, construction scaffolding to make the wings and the backstage. We installed a light system, we hung the blacks, we installed the sound system, we created a booth, we set up the seating, 
all while also simultaneously rehearsing 12 to 15 plays. And so everybody had to be involved in at least, I think the first year it was like you had to work on seven of the plays, either acting, directing, stage managing, running lights, running sound, running props, managing the house. So we had four weeks to rehearse all these shows, to build a theater. And then we had three weeks of performing all of these shows in repertory. So we would do a Tuesday, Thursday program. We would do a Wednesday, Friday program. We would do a Saturday, Sunday program. And so we would do a play at four o'clock. And then we would do a completely different play at seven o'clock. And then we would do a third play at 10 o'clock. So out of the seven weeks, we only had two days off and we built a working theater and performed 12 to 15 plays all in seven weeks. So as you can imagine, that was pretty exhausting. So the festival ended, we had 24 hours to strike everything back to an empty stage, to clear out the hall, put things in storage, get on a plane, fly back to Los Angeles, and then start classes the next day. I was so exhausted after the first year, and it was just like, oh, that was the worst experience of my life, and oh my God, you know, like, I'm never going to do anything like that again. And then I got some sleep, and it was like, oh my God, we built a working theater <laughs> and did all these shows in seven weeks. Like, usually, you would maybe do one play in a theater that already existed in seven weeks. And so having the experience of what was possible and that it didn't take a whole lot of money necessarily to create a sense of magic and beauty and wonder on stage, that was tremendously influential for me. And so working with Blankenship, then he gave me some opportunities to direct. So I directed in Los Angeles at USC and then I directed in Edinburgh the second year. Um, but, uh, yeah, so when I graduated and that was still at a time where there wasn't, there wasn't quite as much stage work in Los Angeles. Los Angeles was really about the movie industry, um, uh, and television. And there was some stage work, but not a whole lot that, so it was, especially as a woman, it was really challenging to get hired as a director. So. I thought, well, heck, if we can build a theater and produce 15 plays in seven weeks, there's no reason why I can't start a theater company and do two shows in rotating repertory to help create opportunities for myself as a director. So we started the company in Los Angeles with some schoolmates of mine, and we did the first productions. We used a, a theater on campus of USC. It was a great experience, and uh, but I knew that I would need to leave Los Angeles if stage work was really what I wanted to focus on. And so I was trying to decide between Chicago and Seattle, because this was the early 90s, and the fringe theater scenes in both Seattle and Chicago were, they were the two most active cities at the time, replete with the most opportunities. So I was trying to decide, and one of my schoolmates who had been like the associate producer on the first shows that we did as Looking Glass Theater. She grew up here in Seattle and was planning to move back to be closer to her family and said, you know, hey, my dad likes the idea of a theater company. He might be willing to invest or be supportive. And it was like, great, Seattle it is. 
because also the weather, the climate in Seattle was much preferable to me, especially after living in California for five years. I didn't miss like the extreme winters or extreme humidity in the summers of the East Coast. So, so yeah, so I moved up to Seattle in 92 and we did some productions in the Seattle Fringe Festival uh, in the early and mid nineties. And then we dissolved the, the corporation when Mona was pregnant with her second baby and I was getting a master's in nonprofit leadership and learning all the things that we have been doing wrong <laughs> in terms of running the organization. So yeah, so then we reincorporated in 2001. And it's astonishing to me that it's now been 19 years. So that's my long winded origin story. I love that. What a what a tale. And it's like cross country. We're in all these different states and places. It's wonderful. So many layers. So you'd mentioned earlier in your origin story, a few chapters ago, that your career as a woman uh, shaped your experience very early on. That's why you started your own company. Yep. So has your identity as a woman still shaped your experience in theater today? Is it like better? Is it worse? <laughs> I hope that, you know, I mean, I like to think with hope that things are better than they were 30 years ago when I started Looking Glass Theater, which became Mirror Stage. But, you know, I think, I think there are more opportunities for young women first starting their careers than there were 30 years ago. I think there's still a lot of sexism pervasive in theaters. I mean, there's, there's actually a lot that is happening now. I mean, the pandemic is shaking things up a lot. But even prior to the pandemic hitting, there's been a sea change of leadership at a number of theaters across the country. A lot of the larger regional theaters, and there are finally some more women and, you know, and some women of color who are being hired as artistic directors, who are being selected for positions of leadership. And there are more women directors being given opportunities, but it's still woefully the percentages are way up they're not reflective of the actual population so it's still dominated by white cis men overwhelmingly and so again that's one of the reasons why in the work that we do with mirror stage and i try to prioritize offering opportunities to female artists of color particularly when i can i mean yes i still also program because i'm wanting to create opportunities for myself but seeing it as a responsibility to do what I can to help open the field up to others, you know, put my money where my mouth is. So I think things have improved, but I think there's still a ways to go before things are even close to being equitable in any sense. Thank you. I totally agree with all the things that you are saying. And I wanted to know, like, speaking of the work that you do with New Stage, because you'll hear, we call you the head boss in charge because you do all the different things. You do so many different things, but you are still directing with it. And you're directing the, in my experience with you as a director, was with the Expand Upon series. So when you approach these pieces that are always very different, what is your process? Like what's, what inspires you throughout your process from start to finish? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because with Expand Upon being such a different process to script development overall. So prior to Expand Upon, 
you know, I would read scripts and I would choose a script that resonated with me particularly that still fit within the mission of the company and the work that we're wanting to do, you know, because you can find well-written scripts, but they weren't necessarily mission appropriate, or you would find scripts that might be mission appropriate, but they were polemics or screeds, or they weren't particularly well-written. So it was, it was really challenging sometimes to find the scripts. And so we started the Expand Upon series as a way to, A, for me to become more familiar with local Seattle playwrights. And so we thought, all right, well, here's a way to commission new work that's responsive to community-selected themes that are current issues, and we'll cast them, offering the majority of opportunities, the majority of roles to actors of color, and then the script is written. And so for me as a director to kind of be like, I don't even know what's going to be happening you know, so as a fellow artist, wanting to give the playwrights free range to write their response, you know, I was not going to dictate what kind of response the playwright is supposed to have to this theme. Because part of what's exciting about it is to see the different perspectives that playwrights bring, you know, that we each have our own personal filters of experience in the world that colors how we see things, how we experience things, how we interpret our own experiences. Like at the playwrights panel, Trey had mentioned part of the challenge of writing 60 minutes or less. And for us, part of that was because we wanted to be able to present two pieces side by side to show those different perspectives. So I would have no pre-knowledge of the scripts going into it. So we would get a first draft. We would talk about that. You know, we would do some script development work. Then we would have a first read through with the actors and sometimes the scripts change dramatically. And Kiki, like you know, like for Sea of Forgotten Encounters, there was a huge shift in that script from the first read through to the script that we ended up staging. And so as a director, it could be like exciting and terrifying also because sometimes it, yeah, it was just like, I don't know, I, well, I don't know how I would do this. And luckily, like for that, as an example, it was a staged reading and I didn't have to figure out how we would have the floods of paper fluttering down in the skies and, and creating this sea of paperwork. And, and so being able to describe it using the stage directions in the text, I think ended up being super effective as a way of engaging the audience's imagination in co-creating that world. And so that's something that for me as, as a director, I am most interested in creating a unique experience for the audience. And so when I read the script, you know, what, how do I envision it in my mind's eye? What do I think it looks like? What do I think it sounds like? What's the pace? What moves me? What grabs my attention? And how can I create that experience for the audience? in collaboration with actors and when we do fully staged productions in collaboration with the designers and having the lights and the sets and the costumes and the sound and the props and taking the audience on a journey that is what excites me as a director you know i mean when i was still acting i had the pleasure and the misfortune <laughs> of you know working with a broad variety of directors and the thing about the arts in general, you know, it's like, there's no one right way to do it. 
There's no one right way to do theater. There's no one right way to act. There's no one right way to direct. There's no one right way to create. And so when you're lucky, you find the people whose processes are well aligned with your own. And so it is fun. And you speak enough of the same language to get to a place that is enjoyable. But that's not always the case, you know, because people can have such different approaches. And sometimes your processes are not well aligned at all. And so figuring out as a director how to get people where they need to be, where as an actor, sometimes you can be at the mercy of other actors or be at the mercy of a director whose perspective you don't agree with and who isn't open to collaborating in a meaningful way. And, and the way that I was trained as an actor is you perform as you are directed to perform, regardless of whether you agree with it or not. Like that's the mark of a professional actor. The way that I was trained was that you don't comment on the performance. You don't make it clear to the audience that you don't agree with this interpretation. You find a way as an artist to make it work for yourself. But like an example, one of the key experiences for me was the first year that I was in Edinburgh. And one of the shows that we did was After the Fall by Arthur Miller. And I was playing Quentin's mother. And the director for that show was very technical in her approach. Take three steps downstage, hold your arm at this angle. At the end of the sentence, let your voice drop. And it was like, okay, I can do that. I am a robot. I did not feel connected to it at all, but I could perform as I was directed to perform. And it was the first time I got unqualified praise from some family members, Blankenship, who was in his seventies and, you know, was renowned for flipping people off. He came up to me after the first performance, tears in his eyes, so moved. And it was just like, wow, really? Cause I didn't feel connected at all. And I realized, oh, it doesn't, doesn't really matter what I'm feeling as an actor. What matters is if I can convince the audience that I'm feeling this or that I'm connected to it. So that has been really influential, even though it was an experience that happened to me as an actor, but it's, it's really influenced my approach, my overarching belief of what a director's job is. My goal is to have it be as pleasant and enjoyable a process for everyone involved to get to the same place, you know, to get to the identified goal that we hopefully share the goal of where we're trying to get and that we'll have conversations and discussions in performance. It's not just me dictating how it should be, but if an actor does not see or interpret the scene or the character or the moment, the way that I as a director want to see it, want to hear it, want it to happen, then how can I work with that person to get them to where I want them to be without it just being like, no, say it like this. No, move this way. Because I want it to be as organic an experience. I want us to all be on the same page. And as well, also acknowledging that like, I am not some all-knowing, all-seeing, omniscient, omnipotent. Theater is collaborative. You cannot do theater in a room by yourself. And so there are other people in the room with you who are part of this process who are bringing their own perspectives. So like honoring everybody brings something into the room. You know, like I've had the, cause I've worked with some directors who were 
complete autocrats of just like, no, they didn't give crap what anybody else thought. They had their vision. That's what they wanted to see. That's what they wanted to hear. They would order people around and it was miserable for most of the rest of us. I don't want to be that kind of director. You know, honestly, as a director and former acting student, I'm just sitting here like, testify. Thank you. But you really do have a very strong vision of like what a director should like do or, or be, however you want to like phrase that and an equally strong vision for the mission of mirror stage. And I think that's really commendable. I know you've, you've talked about your Edinburgh experience a bit and you've talked about John Blankenship. I don't know. Is there a person that you really admire who you think like inspires you to uh, be the person you are? That sounds highfalutin. But like, like, is there a person whom you really admire who you think lit that fire? There are people who I admire for different reasons. There are people who've been influential in my life in different ways for different reasons. So, I mean, yeah, like Blankenship absolutely had a tremendous influence and impact on me. And I didn't always admire him because I didn't always agree. I mean, not that you have to always agree with people that you admire, but I did and continue to admire that Blankenship had an ability to tease out the best in people and to create a sense of magic and beauty and wonder, barely rubbing two pennies together, that sense of the emotional connection. Uh, so you don't have to have fancy, elaborate sets and costumes. And like, it's great if you have the money and if you can do that, but that's not imperative to create a sense of magic, beauty, and wonder. So that's something that I admired and that has influenced me and my aesthetic and who I am. Well, you mentioned a lot of different roles and different sides of the theater you've been on, like costume manager, prop master, technician, actor, director, building the theater, working behind the stage in the staff area. So you spoke a little bit about like identifying as a woman in directing and how that shaped some of your career, led you to do different things and build your own company. But I wanted to talk about other assumptions in the theater world or in other roles that you have been a part of, because mere stage challenges assumptions. So I just wanted to know, are there any inherent assumptions in theater or in any of these roles you've been a part of that you have challenged? Well, yeah, I mean, again, so working with Blankenship, this was the early 90s. And he was, he was in his seventies. So he was old school sexist in many ways, not completely. I mean, so I don't want to paint an unfair picture of him. He had some assumptions for good reason. So like he would always kind of be like, oh, girlies go sweet. But that's because there were a lot of actors who are like, I don't need, I don't need to understand props. I'm an actor. I don't need to understand lighting. It's like, well, if you want people to see you on stage, it might behoove you to understand how lighting works so you can find your light. I've always been of the mind, like the, the more you understand about all of the different roles, the better you can contribute your part. And so there were a lot of people who thought that who were haughty, who thought they were too good to do certain work. And so in response to that, I think Blankenship was tended to be somewhat dismissive. But as soon as you were like, Hey, how does that work? Or if you demonstrated that you were actually interested, showed some curiosity. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he gave me as many opportunities as he did. Because I was the one who was standing there. Because I was the one who was asking the questions. So 
sexism has been and continues to be so pervasive about what women can or cannot do within theater, or what women are good at or not good at, what talents women may or may not bring to the table. And then in addition to that, in terms of casting, and so really emphasizing, reflecting the diversity of the community on stage. And unless a story is about a specific cultural or ethnic experience, there is no reason why the best friend, the coworker, the romantic interest cannot be a person of color. And that the default assumption for the overwhelming majority of my career has been, well, of course it's white people. Oh, well, you know, oh, it's a play about white people. Oh, you know, we're going to, we cast white people. And, and then the addendum to that being like, whoa, we couldn't find any actors of color. Nobody came to audition. Why do you think nobody showed up? Might it be because people didn't feel invited, welcomed, or included, or valued? Hmm. Something to ponder. So again, like making a proactive effort to to create those opportunities, not just because it's about creating opportunities, but because the question of representation is so important. And so the importance of representation on stage, on screen, in the media, is to show that there are these possibilities. The importance of Obama being elected president and people seeing that that is possible, anybody could be elected, where for many, many years, that was not the belief. That was not even imagined as a possibility. And so there were so many people who did not pursue particular paths because they didn't think that there would be that opportunity open to them or that they would ever have the, the chance or it just wouldn't even occur to them to consider it. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the artistic process from your stage productions differs from other theaters in Seattle? For example, the process of like finding your playwrights and casting the shows and development from there. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because it's been a priority to provide opportunities for more underrepresented people. So we have developed relationships with members of various communities so that we could proactively try to find actors who might not have either attended TPS general auditions or been as visible. But yes, yeah, so trying to provide platform, trying to provide visibility for more underrepresented artists. And so, yeah, so making that a priority in terms of what we what we seek and how we look at casting, how we consider scripts. And so for Expand Upon, you know, that that absolutely no more than 25% of the actors that we cast are white. And so really trying to provide more opportunities and more visibility, more representation. Okay, so talking a little bit more about the evolution of Mirror Stage and kind of how you were talking about it came from one company, became becoming another company, moving around. Why was the next evolution for Mirror Stage a podcast? Well, I mean, with COVID, the pandemic, you know, it's not safe to gather in theaters. And so trying to 
figure out different ways that we can stay virtually connected. But even before the pandemic hit, actually, we had been talking about and exploring the idea of doing a podcast as a way of getting to know the stories of people who are members of the community, members specifically of Mirror Stage artistic community and Mirror Stage's extended community, the community that we reside in, the community that we perform in, the community that we work with. And so that it's, it's an extension of the storytelling that we do on stage. And so it, it offers another point of entry, another perspective to approach things from and a different way of telling stories and connecting and challenging assumptions, bias and prejudice, you know, which is, which is part of our mission and encouraging more thoughtful reflection of on today's issues. So again, you know, kind of highlighting people who are doing different kinds of work, who live in different parts of the city. And so doing a podcast seemed like an opportunity to explore and to see how we might be able to use technology as our friend <laughs> to help us kind of connect with and tell more stories in a different way and, and to reach people in a different way. So that it's also that it is more on demand for audience members uh, where a live performance on stage is more ephemeral in terms of you have to be in a particular time and place to see that performance. And with a podcast, it can be available to listeners at their convenience. Okay, you spoke about this a little bit on Mirror Stage kind of transitioning and being affected by COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit more in other ways how Mirror Stage has been affected during COVID-19? Well, I mean, it was initially a mad scramble. We had an event that was scheduled for April 11th or 13th, and it quickly became apparent that it would not be safe to do that as an in-person event. So trying to figure out what could we do and would Zoom be a potential platform? Would that work? How could we sell tickets? You know, or how could we deal with admissions and getting the word out and with the performances that we had scheduled for May, trying to postpone those or figure out I mean, there's just so much uncertainty. We don't know when that's going to be safe for everyone to be in the same room again. And even when it, once it is safe, that doesn't mean that people will necessarily feel comfortable returning to the theater. But that also, I mean, the entire performing arts world was in an uproar. Performances were being canceled and postponed and nobody knew what was going to be happening when. So trying to reschedule performances with actors' schedules and with so much up in the air. I mean, it just has been a madhouse. And so trying to figure out, well, how can we stay virtually connected? If we can't, you know, I mean, theater is so much about being in the same room and having living, breathing people in the same room with you and hearing people's responses and the exchange between audience and actors is much different through a screen. And so needing to be flexible and adaptable and kind of change things on the fly as much as possible and, and experiment and see like, oh, well, okay, making the activism brunch virtual, doing it online. There were some glitches. There were some technical issues. There were some things we learned along the way. 
I was going to ask you to talk a little bit about the activism brunch and how it, it was done online, kind of the purpose of the whole brunch itself, because that is a really big thing that Mirror Stage does. I think that really does bring community together, that it was interesting and very different to not have it be in person. But I think there was still different aspects of the community in reaching out to a broader, a, a bigger community. But I'd like you to speak more on that. Yeah, it will exactly. I mean, the one of the benefits of being online um, and doing a virtual event was that um, it did expand the range of people who could participate. So we had um, people in Arizona, we had people in Virginia. So we weren't as restricted to um, immediately local people. So that was tremendous. And so still being able to offer a panel of experts discussing the issue and the different aspects of gun control as an issue and still having the opportunity to have some Q&A for people to get clarification. It was great that we could still do that with Zoom. I mean, it was unfortunate to lose the aspect of sharing food because that's an important part of it as well and gathering people over food and around food is different than it being you know a lecture but yeah it was good to still be able to do that um in that way and so with with a topic as controversial as gun control also there it ended up being it felt safer honestly to do it online and to have a little bit more control over how people behaved and to not feel as vulnerable to somebody just bursting in unannounced because there had been incredible pushback online when we announced the activism brunch and that completely took us by surprise. We were not anticipating that at all because we hadn't ever received that strong a response to any of the other issues that we had addressed. So it was, it was kind of surprising and, and a little scary sometimes, but um, so that was that was reassuring to have that physical distance for that particular one. So we've talked a little bit about how like theater itself is currently in a place where everything has to change right now, because like you said, it's not safe to meet in theater buildings. Do you think that once we can kind of gather again for shows, do you think that some of what we've experienced or what we've learned during this is going to affect how theater will function in the future? Wow. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think on one hand, like, yes, inevitably it has to on some level, but it's, I think of it maybe more as a yes and question mark. Love that. <laughs> rather than it being one or the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, theater has always been adapting. You know, it's the art form that everybody's said has been dying for hundreds and hundreds of years. And part of the reason why it continues to survive is because it does continue to adapt and grow and change in different ways. And so the theater that we have been doing, you know, through 2019 was very different than the theater that was happening in ancient Greece, is very different than the theater that was happening in 17th century France, is very different than theater that is happening in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, like there's not one monolithic theater experience or approach. And so 
you know, multimedia, performance art, projections had been incorporated more and more into stage productions in different ways. So, of course, COVID-imposed challenges and the ways that artists respond to that, of course, that's going to have an impact on what theater is going to be afterwards once we are able to, to gather again. But, you know, I don't know how much people will see it as nostalgic for how things were or versus how things could be moving forward and how much tension or joy there might be in developing new hybrid ways or again like it doesn't i don't see it as either or i don't see it as a as a strictly binary proposition so i, I think that theater is always kind of learning growing changing adapting our last question and we've talked about your wonderfully varied history with theater and all of the different uh, when we talked with Hazel we talked about like all the different pots she has her hands in and I think I think you might have a couple more pots you know which we love but like even before you started studying in California you mentioned that you started producing with your like I believe it was your community college which I thought was really great and then through that and starting your own company and then coming to Seattle and now this company's been here for 19 years like even like any of that aside if you had to choose one moment or one achievement that made you the most proud of yourself what do you think that would be probably keeping mirror stage running for 19 years you know there are a lot of theater companies that form and disband rather quickly you know that they might last a couple of years and some of that is oftentimes because artists want to be able to focus on being artists and not the business of making the art. Because yeah, it's not glamorous, it's not sexy, it's not fun. I don't produce because I love producing. I started producing so that I could have opportunities as a director. So for me, so much of it is about going through this slog so that I get the reward of getting to direct. So I can remember a few years ago, there were a handful of different white male directors who were like, oh, you should hire me to direct. It's like, mm -mm. you can hire me to produce. I don't produce for free for other people. I produce for free for myself so that I can have that opportunity. I'm not going to volunteer my time to produce opportunities for people who already get the majority of the work and the opportunities. So yeah, I was like, what was the question again? So my proudest achievement started and maintain a company through a couple of major recessions, through some periods of serious personal turmoil for myself, that we've presented 56 Feed Your Mind presentations. We've done four fully staged productions. We're planning another fully staged production, just you know, when the virus allows that. We've done five rounds of Expand Upon. We're now starting to plan the sixth, you know, so that's 10 new plays that we've commissioned. I'm really proud of that. And I come from a place of immense privilege. So even though there have been obstacles that I've encountered as a woman, I'm white, I'm cisgendered, you know, so I started Mirror Stage as Looking Glass Theater with some money that my grandmother had given me as a graduation gift. Because I was lucky enough to have a grandmother who had money to give me, you know, I was lucky enough to graduate college. And so I really have seen 
my life's work about using my privilege to create opportunities for others and hopefully to create opportunities, you know, some of the opportunities that I would have liked to have had myself when I was younger. That is an important part of Mirror Stage and the work that I do. And that's something that I'm probably the proudest of getting all choked up myself here. I was going to say, well, yeah, it's a big deal. You know, I think it's definitely valid to be proud of yourself for that. And I don't want to speak for the other two, but as a staff member, I would like to thank you for keeping your stage alive for 19 years. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> I want to jump in and say like, yeah, it makes sense to be emotional as, you're, as we're talking about the origins of yourself and this company to where it is today, where we're interviewing you on the podcast about all the different things that you've built. Yeah. All right, let us begin with our reflections. I, I, words. One thing I noticed you talked about was her first play. Do you remember your first play? Oh gosh, I mean, I was a church theater kid, you know what I mean? So like, it's probably some like Christmas manger thing, honestly. Was it honestly. a Christmas manger thing? Or was it, did you do like the skits, like the church skits? Oh my God, church. Wait, okay, I need to tell you about choir camp. <laughs> choir camp was a week-long extravaganza where we did like 90 minute musical and we like had our parts and we like performed it as did the you service write the and we only did it for a few years no, thank god it was already scripted but like we would do all the choreography we would like have sets we would have the songs and the bells mm-hmm. you know the little colored bells and yeah, our very first one was David and Goliath. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, I believe was the title. That I was Israelite is, 3, which wow. we could talk about that. Wow. Um, I would just like <laughs> to say, because you were also in charge of the Instagram, I expect a full uh, picture series of this or... Oh gosh, I wonder what I'm the sure pictures are. Yeah, mom has a VHS recording of this that we could, we could get access to. Oh man, I'm like... Doing the choreography, Harder They Fall. Yes, baby! I just love your hand movements. <laughs> oh, that's all they were because we were, like, in pews, right? So we couldn't really move a whole lot. So everything's, like, waist up. This is great. It's like, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The, like, like the girls would sing the first part and, like, the guys would sing the low part. It was great. Um, that's fantastic. That's not what I thought was going to come from this question of what, what your was- first play was. Uh, it's great. <laughs> what was it's your great. first place? Well, I'm trying to think of that. I think it was in middle school, and it was it was one of those like yeah. plays for kids, you know, like there wasn't we weren't doing like oh yeah, death of a salesman in seventh grade. It was. <laughs> Can you imagine though, thirteen year olds <laughs> doing death of a salesman? Oh, that would be so painful. That that would be so so painful. <laughs> But it was for uh, four kids, and it was it was a show called The Comeback Caper, The Comeback Caper, and it was a, it was okay. a mystery, and the premise was it was like on the set of like a soap opera, so of course you had like all these heightened crazy characters, um, to like two extremes, uh, and so we, I remember I played the like the bitch character like the diva and my ruby was stolen i love those characters i had this like gray ruby necklace and it (gasps) got stolen 
And so it's a it's like a courtroom drama <laughs> where we try to find out who stole it. Explaining it, I'm like, this doesn't sound like a children's play, <laughs> like a play written for children. No, it sounds good. But I would it's totally- good. It's very like law like and order. It. Law and order. It was silly. So there was like a hint of clue in there, but no one died. It was just a stealing of it. Of course. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. <laughs> what was your oh, character's name? Do remember. you remember? I do not remember. I just remember like little bits and pieces of the like premise. Yeah. Oh, another thing I wanted to say. So when she started talking about her college experience and how, you know, starting off as one major and then taking classes and realizing she wanted to go a different direction. And that kind of took her to different experiences, different schools, all these different things. Well, I really like the idea. And I think that that is something that gets lost on young people a lot, that college is a form and a different way to explore who you are. So you might have thought, oh, I'm going into this major to do this thing. And that might change. And I think that that as a concept isn't really accepted, partially because school is so freaking expensive that you don't really have the luxury if you are of a lower income status to explore what you want to do and then change it. I think that's a that's one of the barriers. But also I I completely agree. Yeah. I don't know about your college experience, but I definitely like some of my teachers would be like, it's time to explore, you know, see what part of theater specifically you like want to do. But I always felt like if I didn't get out in those four years, I was financially ruined because I was only getting financial aid for those four years. So I really didn't feel a lot of this like self-exploration until after college. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then during college, like I start I added directing um that's when I started exploring like who I am and who my personal values are so like that kind of exploring I did like I found out I was bisexual during that time which was super fun so like I explored but I didn't really explore the same way Suzanne did yes because like that's part of it too that's like people think oh it's about grades it's about this it's about this then like other people are like oh it's about it's school's just for partying and but and like these things and it's like no it's it's a matter of a young person or an older person, shout out to the people who go back to school. It's a, yes. it's a moment for them to explore what interests them. Partly partying interests them because it's a freedom out of, and a time of what we say, like a time of experimentation. But at the same time, academically, it's also a time for you to figure out what you want to do. That's a, like my college experience. It was it was a mash of things. I went to community college first because we couldn't afford uh, a four-year college and I didn't know what I wanted to do and I'm not trying to like go start a place where I don't know what I wanted to do then after my two years of community college I got into Cornish and then I started doing theater so Cornish is a is a private art school it's a private art school but because of that it's super specialized. My degree is my, I have a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts, and that's a very specialized area. That That isn't like a place where someone could be like, hmm, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I want to be a mathematician. You know what I mean? Like something completely different. Mm-hmm. But you did get to learn a lot about yourself there. And like for me, that was a journey that was needed because I took my community college, course, my courses, my general math, sciences, all that jazz. And I am very thankful that I was able to do that in a in a setting where it was 
we're doing math, we're doing algebra, we're doing, you know, we're doing history. So we're doing these and it has that structure. But I got to explore a lot about who I am as a human being, who I am as like, how I see myself in the world, how I see art, how I can express art, what art I appreciate through my Cornish experience. Yeah, I went to a uh, Illinois State University. So I went to a public state school. So like, I actually when I went in as a freshman, I was a double in acting and psychology. Yeah. But then I dropped the psychology because it was too demanding. But then like, you know, not until after getting like half of the degree done. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I was able to kind of do that and explore like which path I kind of wanted to follow. And then I think also like how, who I wanted to be as an artist, you know, because Mm -hmm. there are different kinds of art. So like the quote unquote main stage shows were more straight theater. Whereas I was part of a group that did Rocky horror every year. And like, that's a different kind of art. Yes. So, and I did vagina monologues every year and that's also a different kind of art. Mm -hmm. So things like that that I got to explore became a feminist we love to see it and then yeah uh, she even talked about specifically going to Edinburgh Mm -hmm. which is really cool yes I almost called it Edinburgh (laughs) there's an Edinburgh Illinois in my defense I'm like I grew up 20 miles from it I love that I like the idea that the Edinburgh in Illinois took the Edinburgh and and was like let's just you pronounce it like this right we'll name our city oh yeah there's also an Athens there's also a Cairo Illinois There's Dead's Plains, Illinois, but Des Moines, Iowa. We don't talk about it. I like that. We don't talk about it. But yeah, she did talk about going to Edinburgh. I have, have you ever been? No, I went to Canada once. <laughs> I love your uh, international exploration story you just shared with us right there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like 20 miles over the border. <laughs> yeah, that counts. It still counts. Okay, we are poor. I too have not been. I would love to go, you know, when we're allowed to be around. Right, yeah. I don't know what they're doing during all of this. I'm curious on when they, because, you know, Broadway announced when they're going to try to reopen. Other theaters Mm -hmm. have been announcing. So I'm just curious on the other big festivals and stuff like that when when they will be happening. Also, they're not dealing with America's mess. So in Edinburgh, Scotland may may be much better off than we are right now. That is very true. And there's travel bans against Americans for a lot of countries currently. So so disappointing, but it, I, I'm just like, it makes sense. I see you don't trust us. Like, I'm sad that you don't, I want to leave. I'd ban us too. Exactly. But I'm like, I see what happens. That's what we talk about, like, with, with presidencies. And I'm not trying to throw any shade at anybody. Nope. But if the president is our, is our representation of, of America... It makes sense to why other countries are like, mm, I don't feel like you're taking this seriously. So we we can't let you yeah. in for the safety of our people. I don't feel like you're taking this pandemic as seriously and taking the precautions that you should be. And that's upsetting. It is. <laughs> okay, but back to Edinburgh. So with, with Edinburgh, one of the things I liked what she was talking about was the chaos that it is to create yeah. theater and like fringe theater and your own theater. I just, it's, it's a chaotic process, but it is always out of love. And one of the things she was talking about was it doesn't take a lot of money to create art on stage. And that is so true, which is so interesting to me because they don't want, like, they, they, the masses. We, we're taught that, oh, you're a starving artist. Oh, you're an artist. So you have to be, you must be starving. Oh, there's no, there's no money in art. There's no money in theater. 
And that's always the like rhetoric we're told. So then by default, you have to make something out of nothing. And like that is a skill and a value that artists can bring and can do and what they're capable of. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking about it in relation to there's a book, I believe it's called The Empty Space. Have you read that? That sounds like a book I've heard about yes, before. I have it. A very good friend gave it to me after she had read it. And one of the things they talk about, it's a it's a theater book. And it's kind of talking about one of the chapters I was reading on was like the downfall of different aspects of theater. And one of the things they were talking about was this idea that money doesn't make better theater. And I really stuck with that. And I was like, that is so true. I have seen so many productions like I'm just going to shout out to Jordi Montez because like they're one of the most talented human beings I've ever met or seen on stage. Love Jordi Montez. Love Jordi Montez. And I know like Jordi did a show with Fantastic Z and we know mm-hmm. about Fantastic Z's um, like not necessarily like their whole financial structure, but we understand they're a fringe company. They can't afford to pay like an mm-hmm. hourly rehearsal rate, which some of the larger houses do. They can't afford to pay a stipend over like a hundred dollars for this amount of work and it's like they didn't need money for Jordy to be fantastic in this play that they all produced they didn't need money to create the new works festival like they did to an extent because you have to buy space you have to pay for props and things right but like new works people are usually not paid at all so like this concept that oh if they had more money it'd be better is is tough because it's like if you had more money people's quality of life would be better but it doesn't mean that you're gonna get the best like the best of the best it's gonna help you because you're you're making someone's quality of life better so that they're able to not work that second job or not do that other thing but if you just like give money to the wrong thing or to the wrong aspect of it then it doesn't change anything Yeah, exactly. And I think that's also something that you can see a lot in like gay theater, Mm -hmm. you know, because Fantastic Z was an LGBTQ theater. But the making nothing of something, if you think about how like I think of how drag queens start out and the making a whole lot of something out of a whole lot of nothing and making padding out of couch cushions and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And maybe that's a romanticized version of what of what it is, of course. But I think you're absolutely right when money does not equal talent, but it can help a person's way of living. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, yeah, back to that more of like quality of life aspect. Yeah, I can never think of that phrase, quality of yeah. life. Well, and another thing that when she was talking about, I was thinking about, I recently watched The Disaster Artist. Have you seen this movie? Oh my God. Have you seen this movie? Uh, like a year or two oh. ago, yeah, I oh. think. It got like to my heart. Okay, so I've seen the room uh, entirely too many times. I am that person. Um, And watching this passion project and like the earnest of all of the actual actors who are portraying these characters and like watching the mistakes that they make and watching the wins that they have felt just so real. It just, I was like, this isn't encompassing the whole what it is to be a theater artist and a theater maker and to be like, you know what? You're not going to open the door for me. That's cool. I got it. I'll do it myself. I'll do it with my friends. I'll do it with the people who believe in me and I can make that happen. And I just think that, you know, that ties into what Suzanne was talking about because after all this, it inspired her to build her own empire. Like she has this whole company because Mm -hmm. she was in the chaos, in the beautiful chaos that is making theater 
didn't have the opportunities that she wanted. So she was like, you know what? I'm going to make them. I'm going to make my own opportunities. And she did that. And then she opened the door for us to do that. And for a bunch of other artists around town to do that. That's true. And, you know, just really lifting up that local talent, that underrepresented talent, I think is is great. And she was inspired by that, even with her college experiences and how she was treated as a woman in the mm-hmm. theater. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that as with her being a woman in theater? Because she did hit a lot uh, on that. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's still that glass ceiling. Sure, things are are in a lot of ways better now, but but we still have even further to go. And I remember her talking about like the girlies you go sweep and things mm-hmm. like that. And how a lot of the people in the meetings were cis white men. And so trying to get her voice heard as a woman or, you know, being one of the only women, if not the only woman in these rooms, inspired her to make sure that more voices were coming to the table. And to kind of like use where she is, her position of power as the managing artistic director, to make sure that other people don't experience what she experienced. So it's kind of like a lift while we rise Mm -hmm. moment, which I really like and appreciate. Yeah, well, I'm trying to reflect on and think about any instances of where I can think I've experienced sexism in theater. And I would say the biggest ones would be when I'm directing. And here's a big tip out here in these streets for all directors, not just female directors, but all directors. If you are doing an audition, I always recommend give an actor a note. Give an actor a note and have them come back and do it because you will see they might not be able to take a note, but they might not be able to listen to the note. So like this is a thing that I've experienced. And so mm. I've sat and, and I had to reflect and be like, this might not be a sexist thing, but if I give a note and for some reason you you don't believe my note, you fight my note, like you learn a lot about someone in that in that first little audition phase. So I'm just thinking about that. But anytime that I've like had to deal with anything like that I can think of, it would be in uh, that as a director, because I guess you guys, everyone out there in the world can't see us, but we are female presenting, some would say. Mm -hmm. So people look at us and say, girl, woman, whatever. So because of that, that adds a whole nother layer on trying to show your identity gain the respect in the room as well as be your truest and honest self which can be hard to do when you are female presenting and you say your pronouns or you set up the space for people to do that and it gets pushed to the side now I want to say for the record I understand that it can get forgotten because of how society has brainwashed us all I have misgendered people all the time. I try my best to say names or call everyone they. And I know that some people are are turned off by being called by everyone being called they. I don't know what that is, but I try to respect that. So I try my best to use names across the board to make sure that I am not adding to these stereotyping and assumptions that we have all inherently have and that we all inherently bring to the theater world. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's um, a lot of that fear of getting it mm. wrong. And I would challenge that fear of getting it wrong with being open to growing and being open to readjusting. Because yeah. like, there's no shame in it. There's a shame felt, 
but there isn't a shame that's necessary, if that, that makes does sense. That does make sense. And I wanted to comment on something you said about the fear of getting it wrong. And that's not a space that some people feel comfortable in or that they've ever had to really acknowledge that they're in. Because being be like Cheap. you know what I mean there there are so many like weird social norms and stuff that you might not know or you not not do so like myself as a as a multiracial non-binary individual with the full name of Markeisha often have to be like am I doing this right am I in the right space is this okay so I have no fucking problem getting it wrong I have no problem with that because I'm probably going to get it wrong and someone will either tell me or someone will be mad about it, but I, my bad. Can we, can we move on now? Like, can we, you know, yeah. as opposed to like making it about me. There are people who just make it about them. Oh, you pronounce that person's name wrong. Well, I don't know. It's so hard. They're so ethnic. Cool. Could you just like try though? <laughs> Things like that. Yeah. Because there's a difference between saying, I'm sorry, my bad moving on and learning and there's a difference between being like well I here's the thing if you start with oh. well I you're automatically making it about yourself when it should be about the person who was who was affected yes. by what you said yes you know and like uh for me specifically like I when I started being non-binary I started as she they and I was like I don't really have a preference but I noticed and I worked in a major theater when I was doing this I noticed that people would only use she, her. So I, t I specifically took it off of my pronouns because they will recognize my full identity. If y'all can't handle the responsibility of me having more than one, I'll just choose for you. Right. Right. It's not about you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not about you. No. Like, why are you so mad? <laughs> the stories I could tell. I'm the right. stories I could I'm tell. Telling you, we could all, all day we'll be here talking about this racism and sexism in every part of our society so we'll just keep on <laughs> yeah well and like each person is different right like I'm sure that you as a non-binary person have different things that affect you differently than me as a non-binary person like if someone calls me ma'am on the street I'm not going to stop and correct them because it's not worth my time and there's no gender neutral you know thing of that I think your majesty like works that. just fine but I understand how some people uh may not want to call me that your choice <laughs> 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 but um I think that yeah as as someone who is not a man in the theater it's incredibly difficult and like especially in theater administration where you also get that office kind of culture that doesn't like women that makes it even more difficult because you have the sexism of the office culture and then the sexism of the theater culture as well and that's super frustrating I did not do well Thank you all for coming to our TED Talk on sexism. <laughs>
When We All Vote is a non-for-profit, non-partisan organization that's on a mission to increase participation in every election and close the race and age voting gap by changing the culture around voting, harnessing grassroots energy, and through strategic partnership to reach every American. So if you want to get more involved, you can do that there. If you want to get more involved in volunteering to, you know, send out messages to people to get them in vote. They do a really good job of creating visuals for you if you want to like post something on your Facebook or your Instagram. Uh, and they're also taking donations and needing volunteers to help harness this grassroots energy that they speak about. So there's two different ways to get involved. How else can they get involved, Anne? You can get involved right from your phone. You can text VOTE, V-O-T-E, to 30330. So VOTE to 30330. Through there, first you're asked for your zip code. Give them your zip code. Then you're given a link, and through that link, you can check to see if you're registered. You can learn more about voting by mail. You can learn more about the different campaigns. So that's also a really great resource because then they will text you reminders when it gets closer. Because since more Seattle-based, but since Seattle and Washington in general votes by mail and the mail system is under attack, it's really important to make sure we're registered and we can get our ballot out as soon as we can. Yes, that is important. That's a good point. Make sure to get it all done early so that you're not worried about it and stressed about it towards the end there. That's right. Okay, so that's what we have for you guys to kind of, you know, hold yourselves over until the next time you hear from us. Yes. Uh, I wanted to do our housekeeping or a shout out to the next thing that will be happening with Mirror Stage. So it looks like the next activity that we're going to have will be our reading for our second Saturday, which is November 14th. Yes. So we're doing a reading of a show called Chagrin Falls. And I believe we'll have our reading and like a talk back and discussion about it. Mm-hmm. And Chagrin Falls deals with like um, the death industry, not to sound morbid, but it deals with yeah. like, you know, the, the death penalty. It deals with uh, Vietnam veterans. It deals with the uh, meat packaging and, mm-hmm. and slaughter. Meat packaging industry. and slaughter. Yeah, slaughter. Let's call it what it is. Yeah, so it's going to deal with that, and it talks about, like, this reporter who comes into this small town. I'm very excited for it. I read the script a few months ago, and it's so good. Yeah, it'll be great, too, to, like, finally get to look at this piece of work, because I it's new to me. Um, I got the script as well, but I'm looking forward to hearing it, hearing the words out yes. loud. It's always a different experience than just reading a play all the way through. That's true, to have, like, actual voices that aren't yours. Yes. But anyway, it'll be super fun. It'll be super great. Cannot wait to see everybody there. Yes, and you can find out more information about it along with all of the other programming that we're doing at mirstage.org. You can learn more about us, hear about productions, all that jazz. We have our Facebook. We have our Instagram. We have an Instagram at mirrorstage, W-A, mirrorstage, W-A. Yeah, and if you like what you're hearing or you're like, I think that those people should have some money you can always text play it smart to 206-888-6477 again that's play it smart to 206-888-6477 fantastic and if you just can't get enough of us you can listen to our first podcast episode on any of the major platforms google podcast spotify so many more others (laughs) I feel really official because we're on Spotify because you know who else is on Spotify? Michelle Obama. The Michelle Obama podcast. 
We're like six degrees of separation from her now. That's better than Kevin Bacon Hoomst. We're at Michelle Obama now. <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> okay, thank you guys so much for listening all the way through. That's amazing. Love you so much. And we'll see you next month. <laughs> We're looking right? forward. Are We're we looking forward to it. We would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish and Coastal Salish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish and Coastal Salish tribes. Thank you.